I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Though they only met a few times, this teenage couple claimed to be in love. And after one of them winds up taking his own life, evidence would surface through thousands of text messages that the surviving teen may not have deserved any sympathy. Would this young man still be alive today if he never met this girl? And are words enough to convict someone of murder? This is episode 38, The Michelle Carter Story. Hey, Amy. Good to see you. Good to see you. All right. Today's episode is one I'm very excited about, and I am particularly jazzed because we have a special guest with us to help discuss the Michelle Carter story. Today, we have Kate Casey, host of the amazing podcast, The Reality Life, here. So let's welcome Kate. Hey, Kate. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to you. Nothing I like better than two smart broads and true crime. Thinking the same thing for our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, true crime. We should have our glass of wine, too. Kate, would you mind telling our audience just a little bit about your show and what they can expect if they have a listen? Sure. I basically do everything under the unscripted umbrella. And I've had a show for four years now, and it's called Reality Life with Kate Casey. And on it, I interview reality stars, but also the executive producers and directors of reality shows, docuseries, and documentaries. Kind of in the beginning of my show, I felt like I covered more reality shows. So I'd interview, you know, somebody who was kicked off The Bachelorette or the host of Amazing Race. And then as time's gone on, I've added docuseries and documentaries because I think that people 
who watch television are kind of shifting their interest. I think people are less interested in frothy surface shows like, am I going to get a rose on The Bachelorette? Or do I drive a Bentley on Real Housewives? And they're more eager for short and long form storytelling about real people and real experiences. So everything that you kind of watch, I think I cover. So that's, you know, everything from true crime to inspirational stories. Like one of the docuseries that I'm going to cover next week is called Surviving Death on Netflix about people who have experienced near-death experiences. So anything under the unscripted umbrella, I'd say I cover. And I love it because you never know what you're going to get. I hope so. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's really, it, it keeps you interested because I'm so sick of listening to true crime sometimes. <laughs> it's <laughs> nice to have something different. Amy, you can't say that. I know. I can't. I'm just I'm kidding. Sorry. But also, okay, I hope that people from it, you get a, a sense of like, oh, what do I watch this week? And I do put lists out every week of like, okay, this is what I want you to watch this week. And I do mix it up. So if you have somebody at home, like your spouse or your friend or your neighbor or something who only likes one kind of show, I'm hoping that I'm pushing their, pushing them out off the cliff. Like, try mm-hmm. something different. Yep. I love it. So, Kate, you discussed the documentary, I Love You Now Die, Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter on your show. I did, yep. And I believe that you also interviewed a child psychologist. Is that correct? I did. Dr. Jerry Weichman, who's based in Newport Beach, who runs the Weichman Center, and he's an adolescent therapist. So I had him review it, and we both watched it, and then we talked about it. By the way, that director is fantastic, and she's done a number of documentaries. So she just does great work. I can't even wait to discuss the documentary part. Let me just say that I want to dig into your opinions, ours, and at the end, but before we do, let me summarize the case for everyone, and then we will absolutely get to all of our opinions and thoughts. Michelle was from Plainville, Massachusetts, and Conrad Roy was from Fairhaven, Massachusetts, just an hour apart, but they actually met in Florida at a vacation spot for their family. Though they live pretty close, they did not have a typical relationship in terms of spending time together. In fact, I don't know if you know this, Amy, but Michelle and Conrad only met in person five times. The rest of their two-year relationship happened via text messages. And as I said, it was thousands of text messages. So Conrad was depressed, reportedly, and he actually recorded information to this effect about his mental state on his phone and on cameras, so there's video. He reportedly attempted suicide several times before he met Michelle. And I know that on the documentary, there was one discussion specifically of a potential drug overdose. Conrad's parents divorced, and unfortunately, their divorce was a volatile one and sometimes a violent one, and it was thought to really have impacted Conrad's mental state, which I'm sure you can imagine would, having violence in the home and then a separation as well. It was during high school that he started to report having a harder time, and his grades were falling. He also reported that his father was physically violent towards him. There was an incident where they're asking Conrad's father about a time where he hit Conrad, And I don't know if you noticed, but he sort of glossed over it. Do you remember how he kind of said something like, well, you know, he hit me, I hit him back. If I had to do it, I would do it all over again. That's what I got from it. it seemed like he got a bit defensive. And I was watching it with Alan and Alan and I I acted surprised. And Alan said, no, I could see that. Like if you have a teenage son and he's like bad mouthing you and you're both guys, you kind of start having like a play fight. And I said, I didn't get that impression. 
I didn't feel that either. I actually felt something a little bit different and a little bit off, although we're, we're you know, just on the outside looking in. It's interesting how the opinion differs, though, between males and females. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there was, I mean, there was an incident of reported violence, but Conrad's mother said that things were getting better for him, that he got his captain's license, a family tradition, that he was proud, that his family was proud. But she didn't see the messages that Conrad had been sending to Michelle about wanting to kill himself, about wanting to end it all. And she also didn't see Michelle's responses. And according to Conrad, he was looking on a website one time about suicide and allegedly she ignored that. Did you get the impression then, and I know we don't usually talk about documentaries, but did you get the impression then that she was, you know, trying maybe to ignore it or, or, you know, she didn't want to believe it? Or Conrad could have just been trying to get attention or some sympathy from Michelle. That could be true as well. made it up. Whatever happened before... On July 13th, 2004, Conrad Roy committed suicide. He died of acute carbon monoxide poisoning in his truck at just age 18. And at first, what seemed a straightforward case became a lot more complicated when the police looked at Conrad's phone and discovered messages from Michelle Carter encouraging him to commit suicide. Do you remember some of the texts from watching the documentary too? I mean, there were a lot of go ahead and do it already. Why haven't you done it yet? You said you were going to do it. These were the kind of texts she sent. And when he called her and said he was scared, he had a moment where he got scared. Do you recall? He got out of his truck and he called her. Well, according to Michelle, because this was never in a text message, but Michelle told her friend, I could have stopped him. He called me and I told him to get back in the car. That became the theme of this case. Everyone is going to remember that, right, Amy? Like the, the get back in the car. Although that was just according to Michelle. And Michelle was not someone who could be trusted and told a lot of lies. So it's possible she put the nail in her own coffin here. I know. I I thought about that as well. Um, Regardless, I think it does seem that she encouraged him to get back into the truck and follow through one way or the other. Why would she make that up, you would think? I don't think so. Um, You know, she had suggested various methods of suicide before this incident of how Conrad could kill himself, such as hanging or jumping off a building. Mm -hmm. I heard that she said something about drinking bleach. Mm -hmm. This part bothered me. Michelle also sent a a text to Conrad's sister if at the time where he went missing saying like, you know, she wanted to help find him. Um, she was sending messages to Conrad as well that said, hey, please talk to me. Um, after she knew he was dead. After she knew what was going on. So she was actually acting like she wanted to help the family. Yeah. This part bothers me more so that she's acting as if though she wants to help locate him and make sure he's okay when she really knows what happened. Do you think it's possible that she doesn't believe that he actually went back into the car? I'm not sure I believe that. No, I think there was some level of, you know, faking dishonesty. Mm -hmm. I I think there's a level of being dishonest and faking concern, feigning concern. Yeah. And this is one of the ways in which Michelle Carter might think she's making herself look like a good person. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we should probably talk a little bit about more about Michelle to help us understand her actions. Michelle tried, but she didn't have many friends. She had these photos, if you saw them, Amy, where she looks like she's in these group of girls and she's got her arms around them and they have cheerleader suits on and other things. And it looks like she's just this normal teenage girl. She is always on the outside, though. I mean, in photos, she looks like a normal girl. like she's part of the crew. She looks like that. But what happened when several girls came in and testified at her trial? They said that They were friendly, and they were friendly at school, but that they weren't really friends with Michelle, that they didn't really want to hang out with her. I don't know about you, but I I think the impression here that I got was that Michelle was just 
incredibly needy, and it really turned these girls off. Yep, absolutely. And during the trial, if I remember correctly, they also admitted a lot of the text messages between her and these girls showing how desperate she came off. And all of these text messages are online for you all to read. She said it herself. Michelle said, I have no friends. And there were girls who tried to say, no, you have friends. And she would say, no, but literally nobody will hang out with me outside of school. So it was, she was aware that she didn't have any friends. Kind of sad. It was sad. I also felt for a moment, I don't know if this is gonna, you know, I don't know how this will settle with people, but at this trial when she was, when they brought all these witnesses up and when they were just hammering in the fact that nobody, you know, liked her, nobody wanted to hang out with her. I felt a little sympathetic at that moment. Did you feel that? She was sitting right there. You can see her just listening to these people tell her that they didn't want to hang out with her. It's very sad. Yeah, I thought I I did feel bad because she was a teenage girl and she was trying so hard. You know, she had some things happen in her uh, adolescence that were very traumatic too. She had a very serious eating disorder when she was young and she was trying to manage that. But she also moved on to cutting herself as well. Michelle had low self-esteem, anxiety, and depression. She was diagnosed with all this. She was prescribed with Prozac for her depression and then switched to Celexa. And this is all as a teenager. Teenage years are traumatic in other ways, as we know, just trying to fit in and just trying to manage normal anxieties. It did sound like Michelle Carter had a plate that was much fuller than the average teen in terms of the things that she was dealing with. Yeah, I would agree. So we were looking at a girl with clear mental health issues for sure. But to what extent did those issues influence her behavior? And to what degree, if any, would the criminal justice system find her culpable? That's the real question here. So let's move into the legal case against Michelle Carter, the Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter. Michelle was indicted in 2015 and prosecuted for involuntary manslaughter because her words encouraged Conrad Roy to commit suicide. And because in those words, she acted wantonly and recklessly in aiding Conrad. The Supreme Court upheld the indictment for involuntary manslaughter, and Michelle Carter was held over for trial, but in a juvenile court. Michelle Carter waived her right to a jury trial in a brilliant move, I would say. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with this, Amy? Absolutely. In a case like this, yep. And why is it a brilliant move? Because when you have a case that appeals to emotions the way this case does, you don't want a jury of your peers. I don't think so. I think that her lawyer was smart enough to know the jurors were not going to like her. And they were going to convict her. So the bench trial was the right move here. Yep. So this was just days before the June uh, 2018 trial began in front of Judge Lawrence Monis in a Massachusetts juvenile court. The prosecution says Michelle so desperately needed and wanted attention that nobody would give her that she cajoled Conrad into killing himself so that she could play the victim and have the attention that she was lacking. Her defense says they're both mentally ill. Look, these are two kids like, you know, he's got mental illness. She's got mental illness they kind of fed off of each other's energy. She was on antidepressants and her experts concluded it was a contributing factor to her actions, that she was on Prozac and that she uh, was bulimic. And the doctor for her defense, you know, said that she also tried to commit suicide. Michelle's expert, the defense expert here, said that Michelle was suffering from involuntary intoxication. And this is impulsivity, impaired judgment due to um, the intoxicant of the depressant drugs that she was taking. I think that's. I mean, they a said stretch. that she was being intoxicated by the Prozac and then switching medications. He actually called her psychotic as well. 
I mean, we're going to talk in a little while about involuntary intoxication. Have you ever heard that before? Yes, but not used in this sense. Right. Okay. So I think Amy and I both kind of called bullshit on this Mm -hmm. defense. Yeah. I I think they're grasping at straws. I think they were. But he's not. I mean, not all of it. Right. I think we can conclude that she had mental illness and that she did have, um, uh, you know, a history of bulimia and she had certain things going on. But the involuntary intoxication Mm -hmm. was definitely a stretch for me. It also comes out at trial that Conrad had a history of domestic violence with his father, which we discussed. Conrad Sr. said that it was a mutual fight, but there's no way to really be sure. Conrad's mother and father had a history of violent allegations between each other. This comes out. Conrad has a history of attempted suicides as well, four times. And Conrad talks about these attempts with Michelle. Her defense suggests that it was Michelle following Conrad to this dark place and not the other way around. What did you think about that? Again, I don't buy that one. I didn't quite buy it, but I I also think that it might be a possibility that they are, they're exacerbating each other's condition. I guess that's where I'm going yes, with. I, I don't think we could blame one over the other. Yeah, okay. So her defense suggests that, again, it's Michelle following Conrad, but once he begins to hesitate and she begins to push more saying, you can do this and stop overthinking this and you have to do this now, she encouraged him to follow through with it. And that really sums up pretty much the case. I think the coverage ahead of time was so damning that what came out at trial was a bit more favorable to Michelle, to be honest, in that it was more balanced. And it showed that both of these kids were, they were suffering and it seemed they were both unable to communicate with the the adults in their lives. Am I understanding this correctly? At trial, although she kept throughout their conversation, she was saying, did you do it yet? Did you do it yet? I thought you were going to do it. The real issue came down to the get back in the car statement. Is that correct? That really is what it is. Um, The judge essentially, well, I'm going to talk about the verdict. So why don't we hold that for a second? But yes, that's essentially what it comes down to. So the judge issues the verdict and he says that, yes, Michelle is guilty of reckless conduct, but not that this conduct caused the death of Conrad Roy. The court found that Conrad took these actions on his own with his own intent. But what the court actually was saying, what the judge said, was that he broke the chain of events by exiting his vehicle. Mm. So he wasn't going to follow through. By breaking this chain of events and calling Michelle, when Michelle instructed Conrad to get back into the truck, that's where one's actions create a life-threatening risk to another. And there is a duty to take a reasonable step to alleviate the risk. And the judge said, Michelle did not take this step. She did the opposite. So the reckless failure to fulfill this duty is where the conviction for manslaughter comes in. I have a hard time with that. We'll talk about it more when we bring Kate into the conversation. Yeah, I know. Hold tight, Kate. Sorry. The judge sentenced Michelle to two and a half years in prison, 15 months of which had to be served. So when that happens, sometimes when they say that, that means that the rest of the time is actually a suspended sentence. So 15 months, she would have to serve in a juvenile detention center followed by a term of probation afterwards. Michelle got a grant of stay in the sentence pending appeals, but her appeal was eventually decided and not in her favor, and Michelle Carter would wind up serving 11 of her 15 months of her prison sentence. And she was released early because the prison cited that she was a model inmate. Her lawyers appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but they declined to hear the case. So this case is over with. Um, There's going to be no further appeals. The Supreme Court won't hear it. And Michelle has served 11 months and she has recently been released. Any idea what she's doing now? It happened, you know, not that long ago. So I'd be very curious to see what is going to happen with her going forward. 
Okay, now that we've covered the case and you have the verdict, this is one of our favorite parts where we discuss the possibilities that explain this crime. So we talk about the criminological theories, and then we talk about whether or not the criminal justice system got it right. I thought the documentary was really helpful for me, more insightful. It gave me more than I knew on mainstream media and a lot more balanced. So we could really look at Michelle Carter as more of a person, a little bit more human. I'm going to start with some personality disorders here. I see borderline and histrionic factors all at play in Michelle Carter. Now, I'm not saying that she has full-blown personality disorder, but I think she has some of the serious factors of borderline and histrionic. And what do I mean here? Well, Michelle Carter seems starved for attention. She Mm -hmm. seemed manic. She had those deep feelings of loneliness and abandonment. She went back and forth on whether Connor should kill himself or not, and it seemed at times that she just didn't want to lose him or disappoint him, going to that fear of abandonment, but also that intense fear to please someone. Amy, did you see any of this? Yes, I also think that because she had, remember she had bulimia as well? She did, So we know that a lot of times we see these together, right? These personality disorders and bulimia, but also there was this idea that she's... um, you know, going back and forth between emotions, right? Rapid shift in emotions. I right. know that we see that a lot. And her behavior, the depression, also people that have histrionic personality disorder often also have depression. So we see a lot of these things kind of at play together. I don't think there's any way we can parse them out, right? Because they're Sometimes all Sometimes you can't parse them out. Sometimes they do overlap. I mean, the you know, especially when you're talking about mental illness and separating that from personality disorders. You know, it's hard to tell sometimes the difference, like you said, between maybe bipolar disorder and then borderline because they have such similar traits. I know there's um, people that have histrionic personality disorder. They often have a provocative sexuality about them. Did you know about this? I don't I didn't see that in Michelle Carter. I didn't see that much, but I saw some of the other traits. I don't know, Kate, were you um, did you have any feelings about her personality disorders or, you know, what, what you thought was at play in terms here of her mental state? I did feel like there was histrionic. I did also think that there was some sort of underlying issue with her mother. Uh, The the eating disorder, I think her mother kind of caused the eating disorder. Her mom seemed to be struggling too. So I wondered how much that factored into her decision-making processes. Like There seemed to be parental abuse in some way. So I, I kind of considered that as well. I guess the overarching thing I kept trying to remind myself was that we were talking about two people in this trial that did not fully have uh, their prefrontal cortex fully developed. You know, I have kids and they make boneheaded decisions all the time and then they're immediately, they feel badly about it and then they need me to walk through why it was a bad decision. So I kept thinking, I have to remind myself that she's not, you know, a full fully functioning adult in terms of like her brain chemistry. And so I I can't look at it the same way I would look at some adult. And that made it more difficult to kind of think about the case and to see her as this like really horrible person. I really appreciate that insight, to be honest. And it's one of the things that we will discuss certainly is that we're talking about two kids here, right? They were 17 and 18 years old or, you know, when they met 15 and 17, and we know that the adolescent brain isn't developed fully until 25. 
Um, and, and we also know the courts are starting to acknowledge that from the Supreme Court down to others way more that we can't expect children to make the same rational decisions that adults can make. So I think that's a really good insight. Kate, sorry, I wanted to ask you, I also got a hint of the parental trauma and something going on. Did Michelle have any siblings that you know of? I think she was an only child, if I remember correctly, so. because there was this enormous pressure on her, or maybe it was her own in her own mind, but this perfectionism, like... I think that she was always cognizant of her own weight because her mom put enormous pressure on her. But there seems to be this, whether it's invented or not, but there does seem to be this sense of pressure on her to be perfect in every way. I got that very much. You know, can I add one more thing of to that? Of course. Is that I also tried to be mindful as I was watching this and thinking about it afterwards that, you know, as older people, we forget that the social media component is such a big part of these children's lives. And there was a satisfaction that Michelle got, as did he, from the constant text messaging back and forth. And their brains are different than ours. Like they need that satisfaction in a way that we never we never had those circumstances. So I kept wondering how much the like the neurological part like the infatuation with one another was compounded by the the satisfaction they got from the constant communication back and forth like there's no one in the world that could give them the like no their parents could never give them the attention that one another could in the same way that kids now get from social media like someone liked my picture somebody commented on it their their brains are almost working at a faster pace that we could even imagine I kept thinking this is really a precedent setting case because it's not going to be the last of its kind. Oh, no, it's definitely not. And Kate, that's a great point. And it's one when I listened to your show that I heard your guest, the psychologist, talk about. And I would encourage uh, our listeners to go on and hear everything he has to say about this difference in social media and kids and the role that this plays in the psychology of this type of behavior. And I think you're also talking about that, you know, that dopamine hit that they're getting that it just satisfies those urges. But then at some point she gets frustrated in the text messages in the same way that like, you know, you have a friend who calls you and it drains you because they're complaining about their spouse or their partner or their boyfriend or whatever. And she's almost exhausted by it sometimes. So as much as she wants his constant contact and his constant responses, She's almost at points exhausted by it too. Like, fine, just do it. I don't know, to kill yourself, whatever. And that is also quite interesting too. Well, it was interesting because you didn't see that before this. Um, you never, you know, you didn't see this side of Michelle and what she actually, some of the things that she might've been dealing with in, in her relationship or, you know, the, the way she was dealing with Conrad. Yeah, I also think it's hard when you're looking at text messages, right? We know this in our own lives. You can't, you don't know the way things are said. Sometimes someone's, being sarcastic, like if we're sitting here chatting and you're complaining, I'm like, okay, go kill yourself. That's much, di much different than if I texted you, kill yourself, right? So Very I, true. I think it's just the whole communication. And, you know, just along with that, their whole relationship was over text. Their whole they relationship. They see each other five times in two years. That's exactly yeah. right. The prosecution, you know, what they said is that she had Munchausen by proxy. They said that Michelle needs the attention and the sympathy from Conrad's death. So that is classic Munchausen. And I don't think that this is separate or distinct from personality disorders because people with Munchausen mm -hmm. often have symptoms of other personality disorders. And in particular, 
narcissistic personality and borderline personality. So for me, these two go hand in hand. But of course, as we know, people with these disorders are still legally culpable. Mm -hmm. And that's... It's not a a defense. It's not a defense. Uh, Now, she had a defense and her defense got on there. And I talked about this, you know, before and said that she was voluntarily (laughs) intoxicated. Don't get me started on that. Kate, what did you think of the defense of voluntary intoxication? I, it, it made zero sense to me. I couldn't make sense of it. I mean, I can't imagine what someone like yourselves think with, you know, real expertise. Like, had you ever even heard something like that before? Never. Well, I've heard of it in the sense of duress. So if I'm at a party oh, and somebody okay. somebody holds me down and forces me to take a drug or drink a certain amount of alcohol, and then I go ahead and do something to hurt someone else, then yes, I think involuntary intoxication is a very proper defense. But what did you think about it in this context, Amy? I thought it was bullshit. <laughs> I thought it was bullshit, too. Yeah. I don't think there was a dispute that, I, I mean, I don't think there was any disputing that she had mental illness. She was depressed. She had an eating disorder. And I think, yes, had suffered from personality disorders. But the idea of the involuntary intoxication They were just grasping. Was, I, to me, they were grasping at straws. It sounded like, as Amy, uh, I think maybe you said or I said, it just sounded like they paid the expert for this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting just thinking about this, too, is... um. In my own life, when I was 17 years old, I had a, a boyfriend that had graduated the year before me. I went to a boarding school in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and he committed suicide and called me to tell me that he was depressed and had mentioned that at some points he thought about just killing himself. And he ended up doing it a couple of days later. Oh boy. But he lived in Florida and I lived in Pennsylvania. And I remember in that moment being 17 and being jolted by that and talking him through that, like, you know that that's a crazy thing to say and how you're important to people and you shouldn't think that way. And so there is something seriously wrong with Michelle because she doesn't seem very empathetic like all of us normal people are. If somebody says to us in any way, not even just that they're going to kill themselves, but they're depressed, we're going to stop what we're doing. We're going to talk them down and really find some resources for them. And I felt that even as a minor at 17 years old. So I'm at the same age, basically, you know, when my life experience happened that she was. And there's like a chip missing in her brain because it's not it doesn't exist. And then after he commits suicide, she's almost proud of it. Like, I can use this as part of my brand. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I'm the despondent ex-girlfriend, even though they had not even spent that much time together. So I think that would be hard for me as a judge was to kind of read through how culpable is somebody who has a total personality disorder. Well, Kate, I definitely agree with you. But just to be fair to Michelle, there were several texts where she was being seemingly empathetic, right? Remember, there were hundreds of texts back and forth, and they focused on the ones where she was saying, kill yourself, kill yourself. But if you really dig through it, there was times, oh, you can get help. People love you. Don't do this. You know, I'm not saying it was genuine. And believe me, I definitely, yeah, maybe I right. definitely do think that I don't want to say she's a monster. I think that's too harsh. But I definitely think, you know, she did things that weren't really upstanding. But I, I do think it's important to recognize that there things are being taken out of context and other things are being ignored because they it is for entertainment. They were telling a story. Yeah, it's still hard for us to understand. And Kate, I think your story illustrates it really well that your 17-year-old brain actually had a different reaction than Michelle's. Mm-hmm. 
But I will say to one of the things I did not know was that there was a long history of this discussion and that there were times where Michelle was like, you know, you can get help. I, I can help you or whatnot. So I, I didn't know that there were times she actually offered. I just I guess I just felt like and maybe this is, again, the problem is I'm reviewing this as an adult and, and, and not thinking in terms of a 17 year old. But it seems like she would say things but never really follow through on it. So if you thought someone was really at harm. What did she do to really extend herself to really get him any help? She didn't. I think you're right. That's what I'm saying. She never extended beyond just saying, you know, that's ridiculous. You know, for me, he said it to me in one phone call and I sat and talked with him for as long as I could. But that was one incident. She has heard him say that or did hear him say that again and again and again and again and never really went beyond just, you know, texting back and forth. I wonder... If And again, I'm just playing devil's advocate. I do think she's very cold, but I wonder if she just thought he was just saying that to get attention. I know you've said this before, kind of the boy who cried wolf idea. Maybe she didn't take him seriously, but... I, I think she had to because she did know about his history of suicide yeah, attempts. Yeah, so I been think she had, yeah. You know, again, her responses are not that of a normal mm-hmm. person. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's probably true. Yeah. Before we get to our final opinions on the criminal justice system, which is always one of my favorite parts to figure out whether or not the system treated her right. One of the other things I thought when I was watching this, other than the fact that she had clear depression, clear history of bulimia, um, the fact that she is a youthful offender. And it seems like, again, even comparing like my 17 year old self to her, I was much more emotionally mature than she was. And it sounds like Kate was. And Amy, I don't know about you, but definitely a different level. But I had this idea or this thought maybe that they also might have had shared psychosis in some way. Mm-hmm. I just thought about that. They shared a dialogue about suicide and going to hell. They shared a language that revolved around very much romancing suicide. It was the Romeo and Juliet references, the Glee references. Or I guess I got this feeling, um, you know, they their relationship could be sweet. It could be real. It could go back and forth to him being mean. She says, I want to say, you know, I want to be able to say that I was your girlfriend. It does seem that there is a reality between both of them, that they're kind of sharing an unreality. Did either of you have that thought at all? I think you're right. There's something intoxicating about one another because they played off of each other's insecurities and obsessions in a way that other people in their orbit didn't have the wherewithal interest or shared personality disorder to share in. Right. Amy, did you think that at all as well? Absolutely. But then there were points where she would say something, you'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? So it's it's interesting. It seems like sometimes they'd snap out of it and one would say to the other, like, no, I'm not really on board. And I mean, they reference suicide and that's just like this fantasy, but then we're going to be together. It, it, it does seem unreality. I know teenagers at 17 and 18 and, and even in a, you know, healthy relationship can talk like we're going to get married and be together forever but they don't vacillate between these also complete dream worlds and and complete escapism i think yeah. in the way that these two did and they could have seen each other they only lived an hour apart but they chose to almost keep it in this fantasy world but remember too that for children or for kids like an hour apart is is like that's true. states apart that's so true yeah i forgot like, we can just jump in our car and go somewhere but i mean it, when i when we were kids like so when we lived two towns away it was like 
I don't know. I got to get my stick and my bandana out and it's going to take me <laughs> that's such a good to get point. there. Yes, you're or I got to beg right. my mom to drive me mm-hmm. and that's like not yeah. happening. And, and by the way, I don't want my mom to even meet him because this is this relationship yeah. my mom might not even be okay with. So you're such a good you know, point. kids are yeah. weird. They're like, I want to keep things so secretive. And that's why what's the difficulty of having children on social media is that you have to read through absolutely everything because it's very easy for something to sneak through. I can't even imagine. I don't have children and I know you both do. And I can't even imagine how you walk that line or how parents are supposed to. Do you invade every bit of privacy because you have to be safe? Yes. Okay. (laughs) That's fine. That's fine. No, I, I really don't know. I don't think the answer is that you don't monitor social media. I just don't know if it's like a total like takeover of it. Well, you have to because like we mentioned in the beginning, like our children don't have fully developed prefrontal cortexes, which means they don't understand cause and effect. Mm -hmm. So you, it's like, you know, taking a dog on a leash, like you have to be with them because one thing said out of turn can really affect a child and the, and the relationships that they have in their in their network so you have to help them through it and by the way this is on top of our own jobs and our own relationships you have to monitor your children's relationships with their friends on social media. And I don't think children really understand long-term consequences. Well, not only that, I find it's not even our children. It's people that are even in their 20s mm-hmm. because I have a friend who does social media for reality stars and he's 28. And I always say, you know, why would somebody post that? That's so embarrassing. Like, mm-hmm. why would you post that you have mental health issues or that you were drunk or because that will come back to haunt you? And he always says, it's a different generation. Everybody it. does it. It's a way of connecting with people to own up to your own mm-hmm. insecurities or your failings. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I guess it's generational because I'm like, that's going to come back and haunt you. I think I'm just old then too, because <laughs> I think the same thing. I'm just old. That's it. I don't know. But then at the same time, you see kids on social media that even in my own hometown, where my current hometown where there were children in high school high school kids that had posted like two years ago of like nazi stuff at like at a party drinking and the colleges that they had gotten into found those pictures and disallowed them Mm -hmm. from entering the school Mm -hmm. like they you know canceled their admission so there are that's my argument with anthony is like this will come back and hear some examples but his overarching thing is like it's different now. Mm-hmm. People can post whatever they want. And I think part of that is, is he, in this belief that like media is so fragmented. People just like are fickle and they get over things quickly. And there's so many pages and pictures and stuff to sift through. And there's a new media platform every 10 you know, mm-hmm. months that all this stuff will kind of fade away. Yeah. Well, that's like how we tell our students. We have students who want to work for the FBI and we let <laughs> like- them know like, all right, if you really want to work for the FBI, you need to start thinking about this when you're in middle school, before you get a Facebook account, before, before you do you're anything. Before you everything totally. on social media. Uh, or just any my job. Daughter, my daughter said that to me last night. She's like, uh, she said, I think it would be so much fun to be an FBI agent. I said, you'd be terrible FBI agent. <laughs> you like to be on social media. Like the per- FBI agents need to just like be chameleons, like yeah. forgettable people. Yeah. You're not forgettable. <laughs> you're, you'd be horrible. Yeah, she can't, uh, she can't be on Facebook. 
look, that's it. Okay. Tell her if she's interested in the FBI, she's got to uh, reel it in now. But it's funny you say that too, because when I I used to live in um, Virginia Beach, so um, in a military, like in you know, all my friends were military, and so we had one friend that once she got out of the military, she became an officer, and we can't find her anywhere. On social media, so my girlfriend and I always laugh. We were like, she's got to be working for the FBI. <laughs> or the CIA. Or the CIA, yeah. Or the She DEA. has to be <laughs> because there's no one, like, normal people have some sort of, like, presence yeah. and she has absolutely nothing. Well, she knew what she was doing. By the doing. way, she would be awesome because she was one of those friends that it's like, she'd get all the information out of you but never reveal anything about herself. Oh. A great interrogator. <laughs> yeah. All right, ladies. So let's bring this together in the end. And what does that mean? We like to address whether the criminal justice system got it right or not. So I am going to turn it over to both of you and ask before I give you my final opinion. As a reminder, we all know the punishment was uh, basically that she got um, 22 months, but it was suspended to be 15 months to be served. And she was released um, after 11 months. So did the criminal, sorry, with probation to follow. So did the criminal justice system get it right, Amy? No, the criminal justice system did not get it right. I very rarely have such a strong opinion. Wow. Okay, go ahead. I strongly believe, I think I'm going to surprise you here, Megan, but I strongly believe that this is an ethical issue and not a legal issue at all. I think it is a slippery slope, and I do not think that she should be held criminally responsible for his death in any way. That did surprise me, Amy. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to Very turn- against my normal... Yeah, no, it is. Um, All right, Kate, I'm going to turn it over to you. What do you think? Did the criminal justice system get it right? I do agree with you that it is an ethical issue, but I also think that it's so precedent setting that they had no choice but to give her some jail time Mm -hmm. so that it was a warning sign for other people to be very careful about the way they communicate, especially with minors. Trying to make an example out of her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, Amy, initially, I thought I would go something with you. But in the end, I couldn't help it but think that she was culpable, as the judge said. Her wanton and reckless actions directly contributed to his suicide. So I believe there were mitigating factors. And I believe I agree that it's an ethical issue. But I do see that she is also criminally culpable. And I think her punishment was actually very appropriate. She was tried and punished in a juvenile court which I think was the place for her with a focus on rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And this might have been the wake-up call that this girl actually needed. I'm not sure. Was she treated, though? I'm not sure what kind of treatment Mm -hmm. she received. I'm sure she was in in her, you know, juvenile detention center. But I'm not sure, given the host of factors that she had also, had she never been even tried or punished, would she then go on? What kind of behaviors would she go on to commit? What I do know is her being punishment, I think, is going to be a deterrent for her. I don't know without punishment that she wouldn't go on to contribute to other potentially harmful behaviors. I think that's a good point. Oh, yeah. I I think by me saying that, I do not think it's a criminal issue. I want to point out, though, that I do think that she should have been, I don't want to say civilly committed because that's a whole other issue we could talk about. But if this was going to be a criminal issue, I think she should have been sentenced to mandatory mental health treatment. I agree. And I I want to also point out that I thought it was a little unfair in the documentary of, and I understand, but I thought it was a little unfair that Conrad's family uh, placed all the blame at Michelle's Mm -hmm. feet. You know, Conrad, he was, he was mentally ill. Look, you can't argue it. He was highly depressed. He had several suicide attempts. You know, the way it was framed was that he was a 
you know, kind of a happy kid and but for her, this never would have happened. Yeah, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I didn't agree with that either. And I found some of the things that his the mother said to be a, a little bit unsettling. It seemed like she was living in a little bit of a parallel universe where there was no ownership on her own end of the conditions that her son lived in, both mm-hmm. physical and emotional, yeah. and there was no accountability. I it thought was easy, so. Yeah, it was easy for her. I think she felt so guilty. And I think it was easy for her to relieve herself of some of that guilt since Michelle was in the picture. Had Conrad just killed himself without Michelle in the picture, I think the blame would have fallen to her. I think Michelle had defects that definitely played a role. And I think this is an instance, though, where unfortunately, two really sick kids Mm -hmm. found each other Mm -hmm. and it exacerbated their situation. Mm -hmm. I I hate to say it, but I feel like had this experience not happened with him, with Conrad, she would have been the kind of person that got involved with like an MLM or something. Mm. Like she's just like the manipulation part, mm-hmm. the constant need for uh, recognition and attention. Uh, she kind of seems like the perfect person. She could have like been a would... brilliant business person also, though. Like a lot of, we know a I lot know, of CEOs have a lot of those traits. <laughs> I think you're- And her ups- and the vanity, <laughs> yep. like all the earmarks of like somebody who would be like uh, Jennifer Lawrence would play in a movie. I think you're absolutely right. Okay, ladies. Well, listen, um, thank you very much for this really interesting case. And we know this is going to set new precedents. I'm, I'm really curious to see what the legal- Kind of outcome or what the legal landscape is going to look like after this case because and what it's a game to changer. Michelle? It'll be interesting to follow Michelle Carter as well. It certainly will be. Um, a big thank you to Kate Casey for joining us today. It was so great to have you, Kate, and so interesting to have your insights. And if you wouldn't mind, just tell our listeners again where they can find you. I feel like I have like, you know, an honorary degree in women in crime university <laughs> You just by like chatting with you. You do, Kate. I feel like I'm a little bit smarter just being around you guys. So I appreciate that. <laughs> My show's called Reality Life with Kate Casey. And it's anywhere that you listen to podcasts. I've got a Facebook group called Reality Life with Kate Casey where you can jump in and we talk about shows, um, but also books and other podcasts. It's a great group for people that are kind of interested in things that are true crime and reality television minded. And then you can find me on Twitter at at Kate Casey. I tweet about shows and during shows all week long. And my Instagram is at Kate Casey CA. Great. Thank you so much, Kate. And thank you to all of our women in crime listeners. And we'll catch you next time. Women in crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include I Love You Now Die, The Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter, CNN, CBSNews.com, and People.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.